Wednesday. Um, and uh, we're thrilled in our book learning series, we've had wonderful facilitators and we will continue to have wonderful facilitators, but it's great when the facilitator um, is the uh, author herself. <laughs> and so to learn from Esther Amini about her book is very exciting. And to do that through a Q&A and engagement with her friend and our friend, Alana Storch, uh, one of our well-known community members and um, uh, one of our uh, past uh, VBM board members who's done so much in the community. Um, a wonderful opportunity. And the, the, the screen will be um, Alana when she's talking and Esther when she's talking and uh, a spotlight on them. And then when we get to the Q&A later, after about a uh, half hour or so of that, um, we can move it back towards gallery view where folks can see each other more. You can also share thoughts and questions in the chat mode on the side, as you know. And if you'll just kindly mute yourselves until, until that point, that would be wonderful. We have two o'clock as the cutoff time. And so, uh, uh, as I said, about a half, uh, you know, a little intro from Alana, and then uh, an interview and, and, um, and then the chance for some engagement here. There's so much you may know about the um, American Persian Jewish community and so much you may not know. And so much you might know about their story here and so much you may not know about their story from where they came from. And it's amazing to explore. They've been so formative for American Jewish life, uh, played such a crucial role, and um, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to learn more uh, about them um, and about us in the process, because we are all in this, uh, in this together. And so with that, Alana, thank you for this wonderful idea and for offering to participate as well. And it's with that, uh, Alana Storch, I'll hand the floor over to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Yanklowitz. Uh, welcome, everybody, to today's book event. And thank you again, Rabbi Yanklowitz and the VBM team for hosting a wonderful array of literary events throughout the summer. It's been amazing. It is my honor and privilege to welcome our featured author, Esther Amini, to join us in Phoenix today. Esther is a writer, a painter, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist in private practice. Her memoir is Concealed. Esther's short stories have appeared in Elle magazine, Lilith, Tablet, uh, The Jewish Week, and Proximity. She was awarded Aspen Word Emerging Writer Fellowship in 2016 based on an early draft of her memoir. Her pieces, Saffron and Rosewater, have been performed by Jewish Women's Theater, which named her Artist in Residence in 2019. Concealed has received rave reviews from the Times of Israel, Kirkus Review, and too many more to mention. Most recently, Esther was featured at Sydney's Jewish Writers Festival in Australia. And hot off the presses today, Chaiflix, a Jewish Netflix, is now streaming an excerpt from Concealed, and the story is called Amrika. So this is her story being watched by hundreds of thousands of viewers on Chaiflix now. Esther lives in New York City with her husband. So welcome, Esther, to our Thank community. you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, good. So let's get started. Can you give us a summary of Concealed Memoir of a Jewish-Iranian Daughter Caught Between the Chador and America? Sure. In short, it's a memoir. It's my story of being caught at the intersection of Mashhad, the Iranian city of Mashhad, back in the 1950s and 60s, a very medieval city, uh, and 20th century America, 
I mean, I was born here in the United States, but my parents came from the Iranian city of Mashhad. And in order to understand why there was a conflict, why it was difficult growing up, why I even wrote this story, uh, you would have to know more about Mashhad. So I'm going to give you a little background. Great. Uh, firstly, Jews lived in ancient Iran for 2,700 years, making them the oldest community in the Jewish diaspora. And Mashhad, the city of Mashhad, is the most fanatically religious city in all of Iran, a Shiite stronghold, a pilgrimage site with a very long history of maiming and massacring infidels. So for of all places for my family to live, for my ancestors to live, for generations going back, they came from this city of Mashhad, which is very, very different from Tehran, Shiraz, Isfahan. And so that's why you have to know what makes this so different. The Jews living in Mashhad lived a cryptic life. They are often compared to the Muranos of Spain. They lived a life of duality above ground, they behaved as if they were Muslim. My mother wore the black chadr, uh, which is that black cloak. She looked through eye slips, covered her from head to toe. Uh, my father prayed in public squares five times a day from the Quran. He knew the Quran like the back of his hand. And then in the secrecy and privacy of their homes, they were devout Jews. So this duality went into the 20th century. Uh, and you've got that backdrop right after World War II. This is in 1947, my parents came to New York with my two older brothers. And I was born a few years later. So... That, you know, so when I say a culture clash, they brought with them the values, the mores, uh, the thinking, the belief system of the Mashadis, uh, and yet here, here we are in America, kind of a free-for-all, uh, and this is where I'm born, um, and how to navigate through, how to hold on to my parents, how to honor my parents as I grow up, and how to honor my own aspirations and figure out who I am and what I want to be, which really goes in conflict. It's, it conflicts with honoring one's parents. Uh, they, don't, they don't live peacefully side by side. Uh, honoring one's parents does mean not developing one's self. Um, so that's the crux of the book. There's a lot of humor. Uh, I'm giving you the serious stuff right now, but there are lots of comedic moments because it is a culture clash, because America doesn't understand Iran. Iran doesn't understand America. My parents were diametric opposites. They didn't understand each other. 
Uh, and so there's room for a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of confusion, misinterpretation, um, and wild moments. So there's a lot of humor inter interwoven into the story as well. I want to get to the humor in one second, but my question for you now is what made you decide to write your story? Um, was it a difficult decision for you to write your family's personal story? Uh, I think it was a thought that I had from early childhood and it was brewing and stewing inside of me for decades. Uh, I think that I came to the realization that if I don't write this, no one will. Um, I think I was feeling many, many forces inside of me. There was the feeling of I'm the first female from my family's side, from my father and mother's side, that can read and write. I'm the first literate female from my family not male, the men could read and write. Mm -hmm. So here I had this obligation. I felt like I went to elementary school. My mother never stepped foot into kindergarten or first grade. I went on to college and graduate school. I developed a career. I can put this story down and the women before me couldn't. So that weight was on my shoulders. I felt like it is up to me to tell the, the past and bring it into the present and leave it for the future. Um, I also uh, feel that our story, the Mashadi story, needs to be threaded into Jewish history. And it hasn't been, you know? You say Muranos of Spain, people nod. You say the Mashadi Jews, they don't know what you mean. And it's not their fault. I, I often say that it's up to us. It's up to us to write the story, to talk about it, to bring it into the world. And I felt that obligation as well, that it's, uh, their story is, is rather poignant and heroic uh, and difficult. Uh, and it needs to be known by the Ashkenazi world. And it needs to be integrated, threaded into Jewish history. Well, I'm very glad you wrote it because I enjoyed it very much as I know many of our audience here today um, have enjoyed it as well. So now we'll get to the humor. There's a ton of side-splitting humor in addition to the very serious issues that you faced growing up. Uh, when writing this challenging memoir, was it hard to find the humor in your life? And would you do us the favor of reading one of those humorous moments in the book? Sure. Thank you. Well, to answer your first question, yes. growing up, it was hard to see the humor. I'm sure. <laughs> Living it, it was hard to see it. Yeah. Writing from this vantage point now, uh, I was able to. And so it's very different uh, when you're recalling versus when you're experiencing. Um, so sure, I have a, I'm going to read you the beginning of a chapter called Kosher at Christmas. I'll just read you uh, a very small segment. Thank you. Mom was a Radio City musical rocket junkie. The Christmas Spectacular, starring the Radio City Rockettes, 
was our yearly December ritual. Months ahead, she'd stand in line to buy two tickets, smack in the center of the orchestra section. On the day of the performance, pressed into a hooded snowsuit and galoshes, I'd hold her hand as we slogged through snow, heading to the subway. A sign in the theater's lobby warned in bold black letters, no food from outside permitted. When I translated the English into Farsi, mom shot back, so what? So what was her trademark reply. No one was going to tell her what she could or couldn't do, not even Radio City Music Hall. Each year we'd sit in the center of this heavily gilded art deco 6,000 seat theater watching the Christmas spectacular and strictly keeping kosher. Mom's eyes devoured the show. In Mashhad, she never saw rows of synchronized semi-nude females bouncing uniformly and high kicking their lean legs to winter wonderland, white Christmas, and I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. Studying the straight line of broad smiling dancers in their scanty red and white Santa Claus outfits topped with pom-pom hats, her lips would part as she slid another glazed almond into her mouth. Stealthily reaching into our smuggled in brown bags, we'd munch on mom's homemade walnut cake, her nonbrunji, and her oven roasted glazed almonds. We'd duck our heads discreetly sipping from cans of red cheek apple juice. Watching the leg swinging dancers, I secretly chewed, secretly swallowed, secretly drank, expecting to be caught and handcuffed. Each of our sneaked in snacks reminded me I was Iranian, kosher, and an outlaw. For mom, consequences were inconsequential. She remained cool and calm. I sweated for the two of us. After a quick change of stage scenery, the Christmas Spectacular's highlight would begin. The living nativity. Trumpets, saxophones, flutes, violins, cellos, drums, and cymbals heralded the birth of Christ. The audience would gasp as the theater darkened and an ultramarine sky studded with twinkling stars enveloped the stage. Shepherds, kings, and the three magi paraded across the stage with sheep, camels, and a donkey to stand shoulder to shoulder before the Virgin Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus welcoming the haloed son of God. Women to my left and right rapidly crossed themselves while fingering their rosary beads. Nuns in black and white habits shut their eyes and entered a meditative trance. My mother thought nothing of letting me watch scantily clad dancers high kick on stage, but a celebration of the birth of Christ was something different. Esther, don't look she'd whisper in Farsi, this is Asur, just eat your cake. I did as told. I shut my eyes to orchestra, magi, Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus, Christmas carols. It made no sense. Mom was telling me to enjoy the show, but ignore Jesus, pretend he wasn't there. But he was, he was the whole show. I had seen the pageantry, heard the music and singing, 
even with closed eyes, the living nativity lived in my mind like a 3D movie I couldn't turn off. I slouched down, curled into a ball of nerves, and bit my nails. I'm sinning, scrolled across my brain. If my Hebrew school teachers see me now, they'll kick me out of class and tell me never to return. What if one of them is here, spying on me? Sinking down deeper in my seat, I hid. During the birth of Christianity, I chomped on mom's dense walnut cake and stared at my tightly laced Buster Brown saddle shoes, concentrating hard on remaining Jewish. Um, given, uh, thank you for doing that. Given uh, that you talk about the weaving of your story into the fabric of the Jewish American community or the Jewish world community, it's an important story that needs to be told. Um, what values or traditions have you passed on to your children that stem from your parents' crypto-Jewish life in Meshat? I think in one word it would be Judaism. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that knowing their story, having experienced them growing up with them, mm -hmm. knowing how tightly they held on despite all the odds, uh, I... I took it upon myself and with the help of my husband, of course, mm -hmm. to pass on the learnings, the traditions, the rituals, the wisdom of Judaism to our children. And um, I'm very grateful that it has been passed on, it has been taken. Uh, they are practicing Jews, uh, but I think that was the most important peace for me. I didn't want to be the broken link. And given all that my ancestors for thousands of years had gone through, I mean, no way did I want it to end with me. Uh, so that was very important. And perhaps you could shed some light on the Mashadi community um, in our world today. Are there outposts? Are they just in New York and LA? Do they live in other places in the world? Well, the majority of them live in Great Neck. There's a large Meshadi community in Great Neck. Uh, there's a large community in Milan, Italy, in London, in Hamburg. In Israel, what I know of is in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. Uh, I think the Iranians in, in California are primarily from Tehran. So they're called Tehranese. Um, and they're different. Their background is very different. You know, if you come from Tehran, it's like you came from Paris. It's a, Tehran was a cosmopolitan city. And during my mother's generation, the young girls coming out of affluent families were sent to Swiss, Swiss boarding schools to be educated. And meanwhile, my mother's generation they were being married off very young and kept illiterate. So that's why when you talk about Iranians or you talk about Persians, you really have to say, what city did you come from? Because uh, they're very, very, the stories are very, very different. So in an article you had written for Female First Magazine, you said you believed that you had a special story that needed to be told especially since all your female ancestors from both your patrilineal and matrilineal lines couldn't read or write. 
being the first educated female in your family, you felt an obligation to tell their story and your own. And in doing so, you experienced an integration of contradictory self-opposing sides of yourself, which began to consolidate into one unified whole. Would you please um, share with our audience how that happened uh, for you? And as a follow-up, if it's not too much, what has their reaction been to all of this? Well, first you're asking, uh, what was the writing process like for me? Because right. I did feel I had many, many opposing sides. Right. Um, so, A, I'm female, and being female, coming out of Mashhad, uh, the expectation is that you marry very, very young. And if my father had his way, he never would have sent me to public school. I mean, I he would have kept me at home and married me off at the age of nine if he could have done it. My grandmother was married, my father's mother, my grandmother was married at the age of nine to my grandfather who was then 29. Uh, this is not unheard of or was not unheard of. My mother at 14 was forced to marry my 34 year old father. Uh, so marrying girls off very, very young was an expectation. Um, and so here I am female feeling that I want to read and write doing it under the covers. I have a, a chapter about how I would hide with a flashlight under my bed sheet and read and, um, not try not to let my father know, um, forging his signatures on all my report cards from first grade and up. Uh, for fear that if he found out I was doing well, he would be appalled and I didn't know what he would do next. Um, so, you know, here I am not fitting in to the expectations, my father's expectations in particular. Um, feeling Persian growing up and in the 1950s, 60s, it wasn't cool. I mean, today to be different uh, is considered interesting. They call it exotic. At the time, it was called weird. Mm -hmm. And so uh, feeling that I, my parents are Iranian and my, they don't speak English well and they have a heavy accent and they come from a world that nobody understands. I mean, it's not Europe. This was not Europe. Um, made me feel very different. Uh, and I could talk about this ad infinitum, but there is something about the writing process that I find fascinating. Once I started to work on this and put this down on paper and start putting out my different sides, uh, the writing process made room for all these conflicts that I was feeling internally. And it didn't have to be neat. And um, somehow there were these parallel highways mm -hmm. and there was a place for each one of these opposing feelings and forces and that had an integrative experience it was an integrative experience for me mm -hmm. um, as to your second question was i believe it was as to how the book was received is that what you asked oh, um not by the greater world more so i you know 
considering that uh, literacy and freedom of speech was not a value held in your culture, I wanted to know what your family's reaction has been to this book. Well, my parents passed away a long time ago, so uh, they are not here to hear this, to read this book or know about it. But my brothers, my nieces, my nephew, my children, my cousins have been um, very excited and have expressed deep appreciation uh, that I put their story down. Um, even though it's very specific to me and my family, uh, there's a, there are universal themes in there and it helps others understand, I think, the Jews from Mashhad. Yeah, I'm sure. And um, in talking about this, there's a, there seems to be a synergy between your profession and writing this book. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, what do you mean when you say a synergy? Well, I mean, I just, I don't know if I would have been able to write a book like this you know, given the experience that you had. And I just was wondering if your um, psychoanalytic training might've made, you know, might've might made the process easier for you. I don't know if I would say it made it easier, but uh -huh. it, um, I was very aware that I didn't want to write like an analyst. I didn't want to sound like a clinician. I didn't want someone to feel like, oh, she's a psychologist. You right. know, I didn't want any of that. Right. I wanted to write from the perspective of a child and later an adolescent and then that young adult with all the craziness and all the fantasies that I had and all the mistakes that I made. Uh, and I wanted to really get down to the seat of my heart and what was happening. Um, but was the that analytic side of me, was it present? It had to be. I mean, I didn't want it to be apparent, but it has to be because I am a person that questions and I, I can't accept glib answers and I, I want to peel that onion and I want to understand it further. And so that inquisitive side in me, that curious wanting to go a bit deeper Get, go, just go a little further and, and try to get a handle on a situation uh, was certainly present because that's who I am. So that's my personality. And of course, that comes through, I think, in the, in the writing. Oh, it definitely does. And you did not sound like a psychoanalyst. It was just Good. a curiosity. Um, and one more uh, question before we open it up to the audience. I heard you in another interview um, saying that writing creates a vulnerability. And in reflecting on the pandemic today, you have said that isolation is a gift that favors art. Would you like to speak to that? Yeah, I think to get into yourself, you know, whether you are a composer, a sculptor, a writer, um, to get into yourself and to do something that is authentic and original you do have to shut the outside world out and you have to live within your own head and your own sensibility. Um, and so the more I would keep outside voices out mm -hmm. and not even think about what would she think, you know, what would some relative think if they read this or, 
or if my mother was around today, what would she think? I'm not even allowing that in, not allowing concrete noise, nor the noise that I, I create, right. not allowing any noise in, and just to get down to the bare bones uh, of what it is I experienced, who was I, what, how do I explain this in a way that is engaging and honest and enjoyable uh, and meaningful. And it means self-isolation, self-quarantining. And so this is a very good time, I think, for many writers where they go into themselves anyhow. And now there are fewer pushes and pulls. They're not expected to be out there socializing as much and they can devote themselves to their thoughts. Well, thank you. Um, so I'd love to open it up to our uh, audience now. So I don't see any questions in the chat. So Rabbi Yankowitz, are you there to unmute people or? Uh, yes, so why don't we, um, we're gonna unmute everyone. And if you're not speaking, if you can just mute yourself again. Um, and if you are ready to speak, you can unmute yourself or just speak up as you're ready. Okay. Thank you, that was, that was lovely. <laughs> So fascinating, thank you. So do we have questions from our audience? Ilana, I'd like to ask a question. Yeah, I say something. yeah. Esther, um, knowing your story and reading your book, which has been just um, a delightful experience, uh, one of the things that really tickled me so, and I know many of your readers, was Mom and Oscar de la Renta. I know you've spoken about it before, but I think it would be a tickle for our audience today you don't mind sharing some of that story. Uh, okay, my, mo my mother had a passion for clothing, haute couture. Um, keep in mind in Iran, she lived behind a black chador. So black was not her favorite color. Uh, actually, flaming red was. <laughs> and uh, she had decided one day that she was going to fill her closets with Oscar de la Renta. And she couldn't afford in any way to do that. So she asked me to look up Oscar de la Renta's wholesale showroom, which I found in the yellow pages. Um, and she dragged me along and she put on this show. She, this is all in the book. She, uh, we, we entered and she told the salesman that she owns a boutique in, in Tehran. She called it Boutique 2000. This was like in the 1960s. So she chose the number 2000 to make it sound very advanced. And um, that she needed just a few dresses because the women in Tehran, she said, don't like to wear the same dress. So she then chose a dress that she liked for herself. She made sure it was her size. She picked one out my size and my two brothers were married and they each have a wife and one for each of those women. Um, and she said, you know, she's just going to start that way. She convinced them, she gave them cold cash and it was just the beginning of a long history of my mother going to Oscar de la Renta. She would go there a few times a year. Every time she was in need of a 
dress for a wedding, a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, bris, whatever it was, she was at Oscars with another story and, and they knew her and they welcomed her and she'd come with a pocketbook full of cold cash, which they liked very much. And she'd buy her dresses and, and stocked her closet. Um, but you know, when I wrote the story, I was also very aware at that time I was, I was horrified. I was terrified and in awe of her. It was all very crazy making. Uh, but later in life, having written the story and thinking about it, it was clear to me that this skill that she had developed, which is con artistry, she was a real con artist. She had perfected it. And a lot of it came from Mashad, you know, where she had to pretend she was other than who she was and on a daily basis. Um, and so she had mastered deceit and so could use it very effectively in Manhattan. <laughs> else have any questions? I do. Um, I, I'm curious how your family came to Meshad, whether you know the history, the way back history. Well, I do, um, and it's in the book. I haven't uh, read the book yet. I'm really, I, I'm just, I just ordered it as you were talking. <laughs> yeah, it's in the book. But uh, the story goes that there was a Shah, a king, his name was Nader, N-A-D-E-R, and uh, he was like the Napoleon of the Middle East. He had conquered a lot of land uh, and Persia had expanded. And uh, he had pillaged parts of India and had treasures. So he opened up a treasury outside of Mashhad with gold and silver and diamonds. And he wanted to select a few families to protect his wealth. So the Jews, uh, they came from a different part of Iran and these were my ancestors, and uh, they were part of the 30, 40 that were selected to come uh, and live in Meshad and guard the treasury. And you might say, well, why? Why the Jews? Uh, they were a vulnerable group in Iran, and uh, they were also considered people of integrity at the same time. So it's, it's kind of odd, but they were selected. And from my mother's side and my father's side, ancestors were selected, they came to Mashhad, and as soon as they arrived, and they, they came by foot, by horse, by donkey, however, they arrived. Uh, Nader, the king, was assassinated. Um, and so they no longer had the protection of this king and they were stuck in Mashhad, uh, and they uh, lived in a ghetto, the Jews, and they quickly adapted and had to, over time, pretend that they were other than who they were. I mean, the real question is, why did they stay? Why did they stay? And I think the only answer we can come up with is if we look at the Jews of Germany, if we look at any other Jewish population that was, that 
assimilated to some degree and that country became their country and that language and that food and that culture became them. Uh, to leave was to leave home, even though it was a very difficult experience to live there, it still was home. I see a question that I also had. Um, what gave your brothers the courage to encourage and support you while defying the heritage of the Mashad community and your father? It's a hard question to answer. You know, I don't know what gave them the courage. I think that they were trailblazing giants, my two brothers. One is 10 years older and the other is seven years older. And they stood me on their shoulders. They were, uh, you know, in that culture, it's okay for guys to be educated, to go to college, to do well. Um, and so my mother wanted the boys to do very well, and they did. Academically, they were very strong and uh, very successful in school and professionally. But while they were growing up, they each felt very strongly that they wanted me to see the world through their eyes. And I think this is their, this is their character. Uh, they were certainly born with certain strengths and um, they parented my parents as immigrant children do. Mm -hmm. um, and they parented me. So, there are lots of stories about how, in what way. Um, but I think a lot of this is inborn and some of it is circumstance that they were thrown into the situation where they had to grow up very quickly when they arrived here. Um, and they cared very much about me and wanted to make sure that I grow as well. It's a beautiful part of your story. I really strongly recommend that everybody read the book to read about that. Um, there's a question, are there remnants of your community still in Iran? Not that I know of. That doesn't mean there aren't Jews in the city of Mashhad, but not that I know of. Mm -hmm. uh, my family left right after World War II, and then when the Khomeini Revolution took place in the 1970s, more left. Mm -hmm. After that, I don't know of any in the city of Mashhad. Right. And I see a question, what advice would you give to young women today to follow their dreams and desires even when there is adversity or stumbling blocks in their way? I think it's good to go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I think seeing a good therapist who will understand the conflicts, the push-pulls, um, and to help you arrive at the best solution, at your best solution. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think it's prescriptive. I don't think there's a formula. Um, I think what I realized over time was I had to be the solution I wanted to see. And so I think that's what others have to arrive at. They have to arrive at the solution they want to see and they need help along the way. I see somebody had a question about your mother, but I'm gonna make it a two part if that's okay. So somebody okay. has asked what traits have you taken from your mother? And I was going to um, basically state that it's obvious that your mother was a powerful and complex figure 
Um, and as you were writing this book, did you come to an uh, understanding of your mother as you grew up? Well, let's start with question number one. Okay. Uh, first question is, do I see parts of her in me? Have right. I internalized parts of her? Right. And the question is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Um, I often channel her and I can feel her saying, you know, go for it. She, she was a very strong woman who defied authority figures and defied convention and had to use her own mind. Not that she was always right. She was often very impulsive and uh, making poor decisions. There were times when she made very poor decisions, but that strength of character, uh, I really think that I have internalized that. I hope that I, I use my will more judiciously. I hope that I think more and I'm less impulsive. I like to think that. Um, but her chutzpah is in me in a quiet way. Just as somebody who knows Esther outside of the book, I would say she is the opposite of a con artist. <laughs> no, she is probably one of the most straightforward, honest, soft-spoken, intelligent, methodically thinking people that I know. Um, in our house, we have a joke about, you know, when was my children were allowed to do something? You know, it was uh, always one year after Miriam, her daughter, did it because we knew that Esther had the right decision, and then Jenny would do it a year later. But not an, you were not an impulsive person. So it's interesting um, to hear you describe. But yet, she gave you all these terrific, wonderful values. You know, I haven't read the book, but I have it. I'm waiting for <laughs> finished cooking. But she gave you all of these um, um, strong, admirable traits that, um, but from a different way, rather than whereas Miriam, I think, got it from you by example, because I think the same of Miriam, and she was a good influence on my daughter. But you got the strength of character, but in a different direction, it sounds, than from your mother. Mm -hmm. um, you, she sat excited watching the Rockettes, and you sat scared. And you, <laughs> you took that and became a very honest person. Um, not that she was dishonest, I don't mean to say that, but um, that you took, your, you, lived the, you lived your life on the straight where she had to live it hidden. And yes. Uh, you took comfort in the safety of the straight and narrow, and she took covered comfort in hiding. And it's, it's very interesting. That's very true. Very true. Um, I see there's a question uh, from an artist. Um, can you discuss the connection between being an artist and a therapist? And do you feel they're connected to your freedom from your challenging uh, situations? The connection between for me, being a painter and uh, also being an analyst. Uh, for me personally, I'm fascinated by the subconscious. 
Uh, I'm fascinated by what is not readily accessible to us, but what's in the driver's seat and what is um, motivating us. Um, and so when I paint, I try to go to that place. Um, and I try to get down to very primal, a very primal place as to what, what is operating beneath the rational, uh, beneath the cerebral. And um, I, I also think, you know, I was an art history major undergrad. I went to Barnard and I think I can see a connection there between my dream was at that time to be an art historian. So a connection between being an art historian and being an analyst, I mean, there's a very strong connection. Because when you look at paintings and sculptures and they're silent and you translate that silence into language and whether you're looking at body language or positioning or placement um, of form and shape, uh, it's body language. And you're trying to interpret, you're trying to interpret the nonverbal. Um, and I think when one is listening closely to patients, you're also listening to what isn't being said, what went underground. The, uh, the body language, of course, is, is telling us a lot. Um, and finding words and helping the patient use words and label what feels so amorphous or chaotic or confusing. Um, and I come from a world of silence. I mean, my father was a big advocate of silence and he prohibited speech growing up from a young age. Uh, he wanted the home to be silent. Uh, and so I listened, I abided in many ways. Um, but coming from that world of silence and wanting to attach words to silence has a lot to do with the visual arts and with psychotherapy. Interesting. And somebody else just posted, I admire your ability to be rebellious and respectful at the same time. How did you balance that with such extreme prohibitions on you? I think you have to read the book because it, it was it was a uh, it was difficult. It was a balance. You know, I was I was a very I think I'd like to think I was a very respectful child. I wouldn't answer back. I wouldn't argue. I wouldn't raise my voice. But I did see. I would watch and listen very closely, and uh, try to make sense. I was always trying to make sense because it all seemed. It, 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 nothing, it, I couldn't, I couldn't even attach words to it. My parents were diametric opposites. My mother was loud and, and rebellious and was running away from home all the time. And my father was withdrawn and an introvert and rather medieval in, in, in his thinking. And they were each pulling on me in one way or another. So, I think trying to make sense out of that was, was difficult. 
trying to show them that I care about them and I respect them, uh, and at the same time was trying to find out who I am was difficult. And I think I did that in hiding. I think, I think that's what some of the book shows that in order for me to figure out me, I had to do that in hiding until I arrived at, okay, this is who I need to be. And then how do I present this? Um, and there are different stories as to what happened when I finally occupy space and present. This book, it, yeah, it's specific about Mashad. Uh, it's a very powerful book. I found it to be very powerful. I think it has a lot of universal wisdom. It's an American story. Um, and while you were straddling these cultures, these two cultures, I would like to know from you, what has been the reaction from the reading public outside of it's the It's been amazing. I, I think uh, that's a book of its own. I mean, I really think I should be thinking about this. I did not write this book saying to myself, oh, I, I really want to reach thousands of people and I can't wait to hear what they say. I mean, I can't write a book that way. I have to think about what's going on inside of my head and put it out. However, there's been another piece um, people have been contacting me through my website. I have an author's website, estheramini.com. And so they can send me an email. And I've been getting letters from people from around the world. I mean, I, I get emails from London, from Italy, from Israel, from the Midwest, um, from gals and guys who are not Persian and not Jewish and have read the book. And they say, this is my life. And I, and I have to scratch my head. Like, how can this be your life? Who, whoever had my mother, whoever had my father under the same roof at the same time? I don't believe it's ever happened before. And yet, what they seem to glean, they glean the, the skeletal structure of the story. I think they they identify with the outsider, they identify with not being known or understood by parents who mean well, but are not able to understand. And that push-pull that the child feels inside of not wanting to desert or be deserted, um, and at the same time, having certain yearnings and needs. Um, so the response has been phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. I, I, I wrote about my mother's stepmother, who her name was Yochevet. Mm -hmm. And any, whoever has read the book will know that my mother um, disowned her stepmother. And she was a wonderful woman. She was a wonderful mother to my mother. But for whatever reasons, and you'll see why, she cut her out of her life. My mother cut Yochevet out of her life at a very young age. Well, I wrote this book, and I received an email from a descendant of Yochevet in London saying, I read the book, can we talk? Oh, and wow. so we, we had a phone conversation <laughs> recently, and it was marvelous, and it was like, it came full circle. You know, the woman that raised my mother in Iran, 
I never saw a photo of her until later when I dug one up from a distant relative. But while my mother was alive, she would never show me a photo. We had no contact. And I figured, okay, I'm still going to write about Yochevet because she was very important in the book. And sure enough, her great-granddaughter shows up. So things like that happened that are phenomenal and, and really heartwarming. It's amazing. One more question. I guess you might have answered it already, but were there any other surprises that you came across in your research? In my research? In your research. I mean, this was a surprise to hear from this descendant of Yochevet, but were there any surprises from Yes. Yes, there was a surprise in the research. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is I learned, uh, and I had heard my father mention this, mm -hmm. and I kind of poo-pooed it, and then when I did my own research, I learned that this was true, that the Jews in Mashhad, when they would go into a store and they would have to shop and buy something, they had to put their coins into a basin that had water. And so they would take their money out of their pockets, put it into this basin as if to cleanse the coins because it's coming from a Jew. Consequently, it's dirty, uh, infectious, contaminated. And then the shopkeeper reaches into that same basin and takes the coins. And this is how Jews would purchase uh, in the city of Mashhad. I'm not saying this was happening in the rest of the country. Um, and that my father used to do that as well. And, you know, and I, when I realized this, I kept thinking how horrifying, how dehumanizing, how that must make a, a person feel, um, you know, that you're, that you're subhuman, basically that you're subhuman. And that was, that was shocking. And that was part of his life. That's how he grew up. That's what he knew. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I can't imagine, but I'll ask it since somebody has asked it. Would you, do you ever have, I assume you've never been to Iran, but, and somebody was asking you if you'd ever had a desire to go there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've never been. I was born here and I never went. And it's one of my regrets. Uh, I had opportunities when I was a teenager because my father would go back and forth. Um, he was devoted to Iran. He never wanted to become an American. He held on to his Persian passport. Uh, and, and once in a while, he'd say, do you want to come with me? I'm going this summer for a week or two. And I would think, Iran? I mean, of all places in the world, as a teenager, it was like, no, I have no interest. And now I look back and I'm so sorry because uh, it's dangerous for a Jew to go to Iran today, no less a female Jew. And on top of it with the last name Amini in my passport, uh, which is a Persian last name. Um, and there is no embassy or US consulate that I could go to and ask for help. So if something happened, they would have me and I would be locked up there. Uh, so there, I, I don't have the opportunity now and I really, really wish I had visited and I'm hoping that this regime will be overthrown in my lifetime and I'll have a chance to go and see some of these cities. That would be terrific. Before we conclude, 
Uh, can we expect anything new from you, a new book, possibly? Well, right now I'm so involved with Concealed and yeah. I am I'm, I'm having lots of interviews and book discussions and I feel um, enmeshed with this book. Uh, am I thinking of other things? Yes. Uh, I do have more stories that, uh, that couldn't enter this book. And so I think they say it ended up on the cutting room floor. Uh, so those stories I think I'd like to scrap together and and breathe life into them because uh, there is more. Uh, but that would take a little time because I really want to see Concealed flap its wings and go out into the world and have a life of its own. Well, we, your reading public, would, are looking forward to the next one. So we'll, we'll wait patiently. And um, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your story with all of us. And for those of you that haven't you. read Concealed, I highly, highly recommend it. I read it in one sitting because it was really, wow. really captivating. And um, I thank you, Esther, for taking the time to be with us here at Valley Bait Midrash. And thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. And uh, to everybody out there, this gives us an opportunity to wish you a Shana Tova. And I hope it's a very healthy, healthy, healthy uh, and successful good year for everybody and their families. So thank you so much. I mean, beautiful. Alana, thank you so much for facilitating this so masterfully. And Esther, this was so delightful. And I posted the Amazon book link on the side if you didn't see it yet. Thank so you. I do hope folks will pick it up if they haven't yet. And share this recording. This recording will be up shortly as well. And it can be shared with many others as well. Great. Thank you all thank so you much. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Many blessings. Thank you.